Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. And after going six months without football, it feels damn good to have football back. And it feels damn good to have my typical Monday morning whip around, which I always do during the NFL season, even the NFL preseason. So where to start? Why don't we start in Jacksonville? Start in Jacksonville with it. What's up, Herb? Happy hump day, Herb. I got behind on that. Why don't we start in Jacksonville where the Jags hosted the Browns and the Jags fans let Deshaun Watson hear all about it. I'll tell you what, that is something else. Breaking out a quote, you sick bleep chant during a preseason game really is next level. A you sick bleep chant during a regular season game would be one thing. But doing it during a preseason game is next level. And by the way, extremely well-deserved. They also had this for him as well. No means no. 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 Get used to that, Deshaun, for whenever you do play in a game that matters. Again, you cannot say that Watson did not deserve that. Jags fan in midseason form. And Watson did deserve that, all of it. So what's he do? He goes out and he goes one for five. With seven yards. And yes, I'm well aware that Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt and Amari Cooper and three offensive linemen did not go. But that was ugly. Really, really ugly. Except the worst part was not his performance or even that sudden apology that aired before the game that he was, quote, truly sorry to all the women that I have impacted in this situation. End of quote. I mean, it'd be a whole lot more believable if he didn't spend the last several months denying any wrongdoing. And if the judge who was hearing his case didn't note his, quote, lack of expressed remorse, end of quote. I mean, all of that is pretty terrible. But do not sleep on this moment of terribleness from offensive lineman Joel Betonio when talking about Watson getting booed. I think once Deshaun came out of the game, we got booed less. Um, (laughs) But, uh... But you go to a road game, I mean, they boo you anyway, you know what I mean? So so we'll, we'll see how it goes. I'm sure it, it, it seems like uh, more than ever, you know, Cleveland gets the world. So we'll be ready for it. Actually, Joe, I've got no idea what you mean. First off, they don't boo you anyway on the road in the preseason. Nobody really ever boos or reacts to anything during the preseason. It's the preseason. And secondly, my guy... You can knock it off with that Cleveland against the world bullcrap. Knock it off! Nobody is taking up for Cleveland more than me. Nobody. But go ahead and knock off that it's Cleveland against the world bullcrap. It's not Cleveland against the world. They weren't chanting, you sick bleep. You sick bleep. Because he's wearing a Browns uniform. They're you sick bleeping him because of the allegations. 
they're booing him because the Browns gave up a fortune to trade for him. And then they gave him a guaranteed contract. And they structured that contract. So if he was suspended this season, he'd barely lose any money in game checks. This is not anti-Cleveland. This is anti-Deshaun Watson. And to the extent that it's anti-Cleveland... It's only because the team from Cleveland signed up for all of this, and they wanted it. So, Joel, stop with that nonsense, man. You're a good dude and a good player, but that's a really horrible take, and it's just all wrong. We'll be ready for it. So after hearing that, I needed to hear or see something to get right. I needed a get-right moment, and I needed it fast. So let me hit you with this. I don't normally talk about punters ever for any reason, and I definitely don't talk about punters in the preseason. However, Buffalo Bill punter, strike that, Buffalo Bill legend Matt Ariza uncorked this blast against the Colts. Sixth round draft pick, his first punt today. And it's a big one. Wow, look at this to the 15, and it's a touchback. I mean, that was an 82-yard punt. What? Seriously, 82 yards. 82 yards if you're counting. Rare that you see a return man in the NFL going back on a punt like he's trying to track a home run ball. Only thing missing from that is my dude hitting the dirt and turning to look for the wall and measuring it before going up to get it. 82-yard punt. Like the punt god didn't just flip the field. He completely spun it around. This is why you draft a punter. That's why this dude was actually on this show last year while still in college. Because he's the punt god. Because he's turning punting into an event. A true spectacle. I mean, this dude is so good, he's got me rooting for punts. Right? He's got me talking about punts. He has me talking about punts in the preseason. So... As long as I'm getting hyped about things that happen in the preseason, let me get hyped for a moment about Steelers wideout George Pickens. Yeah, I know. Everybody's got Kenny Pickett fever right about now, and I get that too. But it's impossible not to get a case of Pickens mania when you see what this guy did Saturday night. First, you had that block on a Seattle DB that went viral just like the punt. And just like the punt, you know how nasty you have to be to make a block at the line of scrimmage to go viral in a preseason game. Yes, we're desperate for football. We're desperate for things to bet on. We're desperate for content. But we're not so desperate that a punt and a block on the line of scrimmage both go viral. Now, if you haven't seen the block, go make sure you check it out. Pickens takes a couple of steps off the line and then shoves dude right through the ground to the bottom of the earth which is where I was fearful that Rit might be until I came back. Man, it is so good to see you, old man. So good to see you. Then, on top of that, you had the TD. Here comes the pressure. Mason Rudolph going to go in the end zone looking for George Pickens, and he makes the catch. Does he keep his feet in? Yes, he does. It's a touchdown. George Pickens. Mason Rudolph's one of the first guys there. As he put it up, let that receiver do his thing, and, man, he's been doing his thing all preseason. You see it right there right now, 13-0 Steelers. Tap, tap. Look good. I never want to read too much into a preseason game, but, damn, pick is already fun as hell to watch. And yes, yes, maybe it's because I was off two weeks. Maybe it was because we didn't have football for six months. But I am all hyped on the preseason. 
Maybe it's because of those two reasons, but damn, it felt good to have NFL football back. Unless, of course, you had to play football at Soldier Field in Chicago, and then there was nothing good to talk about. Nothing. Like, I can't believe I'm talking about the condition of the field in the KC-Chicago game in August, but I am, because that was a flat-out embarrassment. Like, that's the Matt Nagy of football fields. That is the Mark Tressman of football fields. I saw that field and I had one thought. What would John Fox say? What did John Fox say? Stay tuned next week. Ah! As always, why did we run that guy, Alvin? Why did we run that guy? What would John Fox say? What did John Fox say? I have another Stay question. Next week. Ah. What would Andy Reid say? What would Andy Reid say? Actually, I know what he would say. He said, quote, a lot better than my high school field, end quote. But then he paused and chased that with, quote, not much. Like, you can't even chalk it up or blame it on the weather. You can't blame it on a bunch of football games being played there prior. You can't blame it on anything other than Soldier Field being Soldier Field and one of the proudest, yet worst, but one of the proudest teams in the NFL playing on the single worst field in the league in August. No wonder they haven't sold the naming rights to that field. And it's not because the Bears have so much integrity. It's because nobody worth a damn wants to attach their name to that goat track. Why do you think their best player is asking for a trade? Part of the reason has to be because he knows he plays on one of the worst teams on the single worst field. And yes, I'm well aware also that Elton John played there. But he played there like eight days before that game. It's not like Reginald Dwight was out there moments before the game tearing up that field. But it sure as hell looked like it. There were divots. I mean, actual divots on the field. Probably a few sand traps. It would not have surprised me at all to see a bunker or a water feature around the 40-yard line. And it's because it's always like that. Don't tell me it's because of Elton John or Bears Fan Fest or anything else. It's so bad that when Bears kicker Cairo Santos is training in Florida in the offseason, he tries to find the worst field he can in an attempt to replicate the horrible NFL field that he has to play on. In other words, Chicago, stay horrible. Stay horrible. I'd say the Bears should be embarrassed by all this, but clearly they aren't or they would do something about it. Then again, if they're not embarrassed by their team that, quote, hits the grass, and they're not, then, because they would do something about that if they were, then why would we think that they would do anything about that horrible field that they're running out onto? I'm telling you, they caught up with Elton John. That's the incredible thing. Somebody actually ran down Elton John and wanted to get his thoughts. One reporter asked him what he thought about that field because he was on it. And I don't know whether or not Elton is an NFL fan at all, but somebody did track him down and somebody did ask him, Elton, what a horrible football field. 
what was it like for you to perform on that horrible track? Elton said, and I quote, well, at least I'm still standing. Man, it feels good to be back. Kind of miss that. A lot of things about this I did miss, but I missed that. At least you could, EJ. Everybody else was stumbling and staggering on that dirt track. The hell do they do there? I mean, do they have dog races at halftime? I mean, that track was so bad. Adult film stars won't even lie down on that crap. I've seen horse stalls in better condition. I've seen goats that live better than that. I mean, were they shooting off rockets on that field? Rocket man? What a mess. I can't feel any love, but I can feel the divots from here. I mean, feel free to replace at least one of them. Even if you got to roll a tractor out there to do it. Yeah, no, I don't feel any love at all. I took one look at that field and I thought to myself, man, that bitch is back. Makes it a landscape architect. Or a gardener. Or a hoe. Or a rake. Anything. Seriously, you want to bet something? What's the over-under on Justin Fields tearing up both ACLs on that track? Two games? Oh, man, do I ever love this product. The Conair Turbo Extreme Steam Steam and Iron 2-in-1. So let me go ahead and tell you why I love it so much. Number one, it is the most powerful handheld steamer that I've ever seen. I'm talking fast and easy wrinkle removal, and I hate wrinkles. An extra large sole plate that can be used vertical or horizontal, and it also works without steam, is a dry iron. How is this possible? Because of advanced heat technology, which is ready almost instantly, and it obliterates wrinkles with turbocharged dry steam. Plus, Four different settings for delicate to turbo is perfect for all fabrics. And it kills 99.9% of bacteria. It sanitizes around the house and it refreshes clothing. Easy to use and great for at home or if you're on the go. To get yours today, go to Amazon. Search Conair Turbo Extreme Steam and look for the steam and iron two-in-one. Great, great product. He is Jim Trotter. Jim, it's great to have you back. How are you? Romy, doing great. How are you? Good, good, dude. Great talking to you. So, lots to talk about. I want to talk to you, Jim, first about the latest piece you have up regarding the Pittsburgh Steelers. There's a lot to focus on in terms of the offense, especially the quarterback battle. You were at their camp, Jim, but you focused on the defense. It's a defense with some big-time playmakers, but as a whole, Jim, they fell off in a big way last year. Looking back, what happened, and what are the players involved in that side of the ball make of it? Um, well, Romy... Fundamentally, you know, they had some injuries, and then at that time, obviously, the things that usually take place when a defense struggles with blown assignments, missed tackles, um, guys losing one-on-one battles, all those sorts of things. But 
the thing that's interesting about the Steelers is um, when Mike Tomlin always says the standard is the standard, when it comes to defense, um, they they believe that. They they internalize that. And so in talking to T.J. Watt, you know, he said it was unacceptable what went on last year. They had um, six running backs who gained 100 yards against them, which is almost unheard of against the Steelers defense. And he said that when you when you play defense for the Steelers, it's different. There's an expectation that you will honor the past and you will continue the legacy. And that goes back to, you know, the foundational years of, of the Steel Curtain back in the 70s and 80s and on through the different units we have had each decade there. And so for them to go from, I believe it was third overall in total defense to 24th, I believe it was, um, that wasn't just a, a fall off for them. That was a free fall. And so... The focus this year has been on correcting that, on being able to stop the run. And, you know, everyone wants to talk about can that unit carry the load while they go through this transition to quarterback. And, and their response is that's not really our focus. Our focus is on living up to the standard and the legacy that we have always had in Pittsburgh as it relates to defense. So um, so it's an interesting group. As you say, there there are some talent makers, some stars at each position, you know, T.J. Watt being a game record cam. Hayward being an all-pro, Minka Fitzpatrick being one of the highest-paid safeties in the game now, and, and now they've tried to um, supplement those guys with guys like, you know, Larry um, Oganabi and and with um, Miles Jack coming in at the linebacker position as well as what they did in the draft. So it's a unit worth watching this year. No doubt. Jim Trotter joining us. So, Jim, you've written about that. You've also focused on the Browns defense, which had high hopes last year. They got off to a terrible start. They finished much better. Let me ask you this. When you look at those two teams, then you look at the Bengals coming off an AFC championship, then they get Joe Burrow back from appendectomy. Lamar Jackson's situation obviously bears watching with the Ravens. Overall, how do you see the AFC North shaking out this year? Man, it's loaded. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think Baltimore wins the division. Um, I, I think that John Harbaugh is one of the more underrated coaches in the league. That's just me. Every year his teams, you know, like Tomlin, are, are, you know what you're going to get from them, and they usually deliver in that way. You know, the funny thing is, Romney, last year, if Lamar Jackson doesn't get hurt um, that last month plus of the season where he's out, they're right there in the hunt to go to the playoffs and likely do go to the playoffs. And that is despite you know, just sort of unprecedented injuries. When you look at all the guys they had lost going back all the way to training camp, when you started talking about their running back core and they were down to a third or fourth string running back to start the year or early in the year. So as you go through all of that and you see where that team was, I think with a healthy Lamar, um, with some guys returning and whatnot, I think Baltimore is going to be one of those teams that people respect and know is good but I think it has has a chance of of winning that division and why do I say that with Cincinnati being so strong having gone to the Super Bowl last year I just look at history Romy and 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 it's tough for teams particularly young teams that haven't been through it before to understand what it's like to be the hunted instead of the hunter and everyone is going to have the Bengals circled on that calendar now knowing how good they are knowing that they went to a Super Bowl last year and I do believe that they will be in the hunt and probably even make the playoffs, but I don't believe it's going to be as smooth, let's say, as maybe it was a year ago. Talking to Jim Trotter. So, Jim, the league has, back to Deshaun Watson, the league reportedly has been looking for an indefinite suspension in that case. What feels like an appropriate suspension for Watson to you? I've been saying all along, I think a year, because when you read the report, 
Um, and Judge Sue Robinson uses terms like predatory behavior when she uses terms like, you know, egregious in terms of his behavior. When she talks about him damaging the league, you know, in terms of its image and whatnot, all of these things. And then she says that the league, based on its description, has proven that he committed sexual assault by its definition. Um, I don't see how you give anything less than a year. I don't believe in an indefinite suspension or suspension because I do believe that, that it should be something finite, um, and I don't believe you hold that over the player's head. I believe that when you when you serve your time, basically, you should be allowed to come back and play, and, and I think a year is enough. And I'll say this, too, about Deshaun Watson. Early on, I tried to stay out of it because, you know, everybody wants to have a hot take, and I get that. But for me, this is so serious that I, I wanted to wait until I could – could see some or see or read some of the evidence that's being presented and whatnot. And what it says to me is that when you as a player have access to some of the best um, physical therapists in the country as an NFL player, and you choose to go on social media and you reach out to 60 plus women on social media for a quote, quote unquote massage. And, and many of them are not even licensed. And then we won't even get into the towel trick that, that was played. It says to me that you have a problem. And look, your own sexual pre, um, predilections or whatever, that's your business. But when you cause trauma to some of these women, and I'm not by any means saying all, but some, and like when I see Ash, Ashley Solis and I see her interview on Real Sports, you cannot tell me that that woman was not traumatized psychologically by what took place. Um there's a consequence for that. And so from my standpoint, that's why I think it's fair to, to have him out for a year. I think Deshaun's a great player. I think he's done a lot of good work in the community, but certain actions have consequences and this should be one of them. And if the NFL was going to say that it cares about mental health for its players, for its employees, or just in general, you cannot tell me that those women, some of those women, I should say, were not traumatized by what took place. Jim Trotter is my guest. Jim, I got about 90 seconds. I want to try and get to this as well. What do you make of how the league, all of, everything you just said, under consideration, what do you make of how the league handled the Stephen Ross situation? Is there any way, for instance, that you buy the argument that he was just joking when he offered Brian Flores 100 grand per game to lose? No. Look, Romy, you have to take all of the evidence in its totality. So when he says to multiple people, as this, this report says, that to place a priority on the draft over win- winning, that by its very definition is tanking. So I don't know how you get beyond that. And now you couple that with comments about offering $100,000 to to lose games. When you put the two together, I find it hard to say that he's joking. And then to know, now if we're going to talk about integrity and whatnot, to know then that he's out tampering with other players, with Tom Brady to try and bring him in, I don't think that Stephen Ross has a lot of integrity to stand on here as we talk about this. So for me, I think the league wanted to get away from it as quickly as possible. It was never going to admit that an owner was tanking games unless there was some way to say you had hard proof. And to me, that, um, I think that Brian Flores more than proved his allegation that Stephen Ross was trying to tank games by Stephen Ross in his own words saying to people in the organization to place a greater priority on the draft over winning games. Again, by its very definition, as I see it, that is the definition of tanking. 
Agreed. It's a textbook definition. He is a reporter for NFL Media. He is a Hall of Fame voter. He is the author of Junior Seau, The Life and Death of a Football Icon. He is a good friend of the program. And this is why I booked him as my first guest back coming off my vacation. Jim, great to have you back. I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much. Romy, always, man. I appreciate the vine. You got it. You know, we could talk about how complicated other banks make it to redeem credit card rewards, like how they require minimums and worse yet, how their rewards flat out expire. Or we could talk about how with Discover, you can redeem rewards for cash in any amount at any time. I mean, you want to talk about amazing. And now that we've talked about that, let's get back to the daily jungle. You know, the stuff that we talk about here daily. Learn more at discover.com slash redeem rewards. Terms apply. So Friday, Major League Baseball announced that Fernando Tatis Jr. had been suspended 80, 8-0, 80 games for testing positive for a banned substance. 80 games. So he's not yet played this year. He's suspended for the rest of the season and into next season. So, so much for that great Tatis comeback of 2022. So much for combining Tatis with Manny Machado and Juan Soto this year. So much for the Padres loading up, not just to make a deep run in the postseason this year after falling apart late last year, but loading up to win it all right here, right now. Like, I'll be honest, almost nothing surprises me anymore, but that news kind of knocked me on my ass. It did shock me. In fact, it pretty much shocked everybody. One of the biggest, most shocking failed tests in years. I was shocked. Almost everybody was. Then again, if we were really paying attention, maybe none of us should have been shocked. Once again, I know I always say that we don't really know these guys, but man, I did not expect that guy to get popped for something like that. Then again, watching him of late... Maybe I should have expected it. Or if not expected it, maybe I should not have been shocked. Now, I'll tell you what I didn't expect was his explanation for how the drug got into his system. But then again, and not to be talking out of both sides of my ass, then again, some of the dumbest bleep ever always seems to come out when a cheater gets caught. When somebody is trying to treat ringworm. That's right, ringworm. My man played the ringworm card from the bottom of the deck. He said he accidentally ingested Clostabol as part of a way to recover from the worm. Ringworm. Like, I got to know who the hell fed him that. Or did he just come up with that with himself? By himself. Credit for originality, I guess. Credit Credit. for breaking out the old ringworm excuse. Like, we've heard all about tainted supplements, tainted beef, a spiked drink, a vengeful trainer, but I've never heard somebody go with the worm. I've never heard somebody blame it on the worm. I don't even know, or I don't even know that I need to hit this with an err, because of course nobody believed that. And the reason nobody believed it is because it's probably the worst excuse ever. Because as Tom Verducci points out, quote, 
Klosterball is favored by some drug cheats because it provides the benefits of elevated testosterone, muscle growth, with a less elevated level of estrogen as a byproduct. End of quote. Like, wow, what a quinky dink. My ringworm medication just so happens to have something in it which elevates testosterone. But without the side effects. No way. I mean, was there some sort of accident at the factory? Did somebody spill all of these roids into this big vat of ringworm medication? And now I'm ringworm free and I can bench a thousand pounds. Bench the 1,000 pounds 15 times. It's incredible. Like, the worm is gone, and I can put 1,000 pounds up 25 times. Like, if that's the excuse you're going with, the tainted ringworm meds, you're either a cheater, a bold-ass cheater, or you're just stupid, or both. But none of it looks good. When the Padres signed Tatis to that massive contract last year, yes, I was pumped. I can go back and play the tape. Yes, I was pumped. Pumped for San Diego. Pumped for him. Pumped for baseball. It was a statue deal. You know, that was the whole point. The contract would end with him getting a statue outside the stadium. When you sign a statue deal, you cannot get popped for tainted ringworm meds a year and a half later. And you sure as hell can't do it when you're coming back from an injury and you're in the midst of a rehab assignment and you're this close to coming back. And they surrounded you with all this talent and all this other money they spent. And you can't do it when you're coming back and rehabbing from a motorcycle accident. Something also pretty stupid. It's not just a terrible look. It's like the worst look ever. Oh, and it's not just the off-season motorcycle accident. There was that shoulder injury that he suffered last year that the team wanted him to get fixed, but he decided not to. Then he chased the shoulder with a busted wrist and had a three-month delay before he had that surgery. So when you get that statue deal, you can't wreck your wrist the next off-season in a motorcycle accident and then test positive for PEDs and then miss the entire season and the start of the next. You know, wreck your motorcycle, wreck your team season, wreck your rep, and do it all at once. And that's not even me talking now. I mean, I believe all that, but that's not just me. It's more important people than me. It's his teammates. It's his organization. It's his boss. It's the guy scratching the check. Check out some of these quotes from GM AJ Preller. This is Preller on Tatis saying that it was tainted ringworm meds. The GM said, quote, that's his story. I haven't had a chance to talk to him yet about it, end of quote. I mean, damn. Let me try and translate that. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds to me like that's a load of crap. Don't expect me to back him up on that. Because they normally do, right? When have you ever heard a GM take a run at a statue player like that? And he was only getting started. 
He had a quote. I think the biggest thing just from our standpoint, just from MLB standpoint, there is a drug policy in place. He failed the drug screen. Ultimately, he's suspended. He can't play. That's the biggest thing. It's the player's responsibility to make sure that he's within compliance of that. He wasn't. And ultimately, we're supportive of that. End of quote. In other words, it doesn't really matter what story he tells. The guy failed a drug test. We are now without that guy. He's suspended for 80 games. We are screwed because of that. And he still wasn't done. Preller, quote, it's very disappointing. He's somebody that from the organization standpoint, we've invested time and money into. And when he's on the field, he's a difference maker. And I think we're hoping that from the offseason to now, there would be some maturity. And obviously with the news today, it's more of a pattern and something we've got to dig a little bit more into. I'm sure he's very disappointed, but at the end of the day, it's one thing to say it. You have to start by showing it with your actions. End of quote. So, A.J. Pro is not pulling any punches at all. When you're a franchise player on that so-called statue contract, you can't be getting into off-season motorcycle accidents, plural. You can't be juicing up, I mean, treating yourself for ringworm with roids. You just can't. I mean, you got to be more mature than that. You got to be more professional than that. You got to be smarter than that. You got to be more unselfish than that. I mean, that's incredible. And it's not just me, and it's not just the front office, it's also his teammates. Mike Clevenger, quote, It's the second time we've been disappointed with him. You hope he grows up and learns from this and learns that it's about more than just him right now. Seriously, when you got a franchise player who gets into trouble, normally they're bending over backwards to have that guy's back, not the GM, not even his teammates. And that's not just one guy. Joe Musgrove weighed in, quote, he's a young kid. He's going to learn his lessons or whatnot, but ultimately I think you've got to start showing a little bit of remorse, and you've got to start showing us that you're committed to it and you want to be here, end of quote. I mean, I'm telling you, what a difference a year makes. This guy had an amazing reputation a year ago. One of the best players in the game, a surefire Hall of Famer. He had that crazy it, incredible flair. He was must-see TV. And now he's nowhere near a TV for an entire year. You can't see this guy. An organization that is working its ass off to win a World Series. I mean, who's doing more than the Padres? And I can make that statement because, by the way, they're spending money that they don't have yet. They're spending money ahead of what they've actually achieved. They're all bleeping in without knowing whether or not they can pay it off. That's how much they believe and how much of a risk they're willing to take. And yet this guy's nowhere to be found. The cornerstone. And now the team is stuck with his massive contract, 13 years, for a guy that they simply cannot trust. The only good thing about a contract having more than a decade left on it is the fact that it might take him that long to earn all that trust back. And even then, I'm not sure it's long enough. He's just given up a prime year, a year where they pushed every last chip they have to the center of the table to win it right now 
and he's not there for them because of a motorcycle accident and a roid bust and surgeries that they wanted him to get that he put off. Like, this guy went from being the king of San Diego and one of the biggest stars in baseball to a guy now that everybody is questioning. And a guy whose legacy is already, like, if not wrecked, then badly tainted. And I'm not sure this guy can undo that. Hard as it was to come back from a shattered wrist, even tougher to come back from a shattered rep and all this crap. And by the way, he shouldn't have been on a motorcycle. He just shouldn't have been. I'm not saying these guys can't live their lives. I'm not saying these guys got to be in bubble wrap. But if you're the face of the franchise and they just committed that kind of money to you, there are certain things, if you're that guy with that contract, that you simply cannot do. Certain trade-offs, certain sacrifices. Jumping on a hog is one of them. And by the way, it's not a hell of a lot to ask, right? It's not a hell of a lot to ask. I'm not telling you how to spend your money, but I'm saying be smart. It's just not worth it. The risk-reward thing, it's not worth it. You know, the chances of an accident might be kind of slim. Maybe you might, that make it, you might make that argument. Except it did happen. And apparently more than once. But I'll tell you what can't happen. Loading up on roids. I mean, tainted ringworm meds. That can't happen either. But it did. Like, you can't be that guy. But he is, and management's pissed, and his teammates are pissed, and the fans are pissed, and every last one of them has a reason to be pissed. As always, we don't really know these guys, especially this dude. And it's got to be especially infuriating for the organization, his teammates, and the fans, because this was supposed to be the best year ever for San Diego. Best year ever. And by the way, never mind best year ever, they might miss the playoffs altogether. So if that were to happen, you go from it being the best year ever to arguably the worst. Thanks for that, Fernando. Hey, San Diego, sorry about that. Two steps forward, three steps back. You get Soto, you lose Tatis. Like, I don't see Mookie Betts or Trey Turner getting busted for roids and then going to the ringworm card. What? Tapeworm? Didn't want any of that? Hey, while I'm here... I want to hear from every worm out there. Round worm, pinworm, hookworm. What are those? Those candy worms. Those two. Sour patch worms, or whatever the hell they are. Hey, parasites, pick up the phone. You things are freaking disgusting. All of you worms. Dr. Jano was trying to fish off, fish off our dock with live worms. It didn't work. So you know what she did? She doubled up on the worm. She went double live worm on the hook. But the fish was smarter than the fisherman. Er, fisherwoman. Ah. Hey, don't get me started on yeast infections either. Candida, you're freaking sick. Hey, Nando. Next time, mix in a trip to CVS and get some anti-fungal ointment. Mix in some Lamisol, bro. Lotrimin. Reaction. Tenactin. Lotrimin. Anything but steroids, brah. 80 games. 
Hope that was worth it. Boyne Trabajo, El Suspendo. I mean, for real? <laughs> Ultimately, San Diego reaction. I mean, sincerely. San Diego reaction. Because that's some bad bleep. So I'm in the business of asking people questions. So let me ask you a question. Do you feel like your antiperspirant keeps you dry all day long? Fair question, right? Dove Men Plus Care Dry Spray has an instantly drying antiperspirant formula that can help give you a cleaner feel and offers 48 hours of sweat and odor protection. I said 48 hours. That's a big number now. Dove Men Dry Spray feels light and clean on your skin, and it's quick and easy to use, especially when you're on the move. Also, Dove Men Dry Spray contains Dove's unique one-quarter moisturizing cream that helps protect your skin as well, and it leaves your skin feeling comfortable and helps protect it. So much to like about this. Try Dove Men Dry Spray. Goes on dry, clean feel, all day. Mac Brown. Mac, great to have you on, as always. How are you? I'm doing great, Jim. How are you? I've been jealous of you all summer seeing you on that lake up in Wisconsin. My man, I appreciate I saw, that. I saw, I saw the Twitter, and that looks absolutely gorgeous. Mac, that is very nice of you to say. I appreciate that very much. I appreciate you seeing that. It was fun. It's a lot of fun. You know, Mac, as we get older, we have a greater appreciation and a greater perspective, so I do appreciate those things so much more. In fact, looking at you from afar, Mac, it's the middle of August, and a week from this Saturday, you are going to kick off the season. You've been through so many fall camps in your career. It seems to me, though, you still are as fired up as ever before what is the mood like around the team at this point of the year Jim I think I'm more fired up because it uh, you you realize as you get older what your purpose is and my purpose is to be a mentor for young coaches try to help college football and mentor these young men and it sounds like kind of corny but after I, I got away from it I realized that's what I really missed so we we have Two great years for us that were unexpected. We exceeded expectations. We didn't do as well last year when we had the expectations, and we we uh, underachieved. So we've gone back to work, and it's been fun. We, we've got a very talented, inexperienced team because we've we've recruited really well for the last two years. So we we've said our our kids are great. We've got talent. We we they're doing well in school. They're acting right. Uh, now it's time to win games, and and that's all we've got left. And and that's a uh, that's a that's a load that's a burden on coaches because we've we've lost 14 games in three years by seven points or less, and that's coaching. So that's on us. So I am so fired up and and so uh, challenged about our coaches getting this young bunch where they need to be, and and that's a fun thing for for guys to do. We're good enough. So now we, we've recruited well enough, it, it's time to produce. We're talking to Mac Brown. I was going to say, Mac, it's really interesting because you mentioned the expectations, and then notice what you did not say. You didn't say these are young players and they have to learn to deal with these expectations. You said it's on the coaching staff. Very clearly, you're holding yourself and your staff responsible you know, to a certain extent or a large extent. Why is that level of ownership so important? Well, Jim, at Texas, we won all the close games. I think maybe we won 17 and lost three within three points in the fourth quarter. It, it was phenomenal, and that's just who we were. 
And we, we haven't been able to do that here, and we haven't won on the road. And those are things that, that coaches do. So to me, since the these guys try, uh, last year's team was a little inconsistent. This, this bunch this spring, they've given us 100% every day. We've had great scrimmages. They're competing. They're fighting. So it's it's on us, and, and coaches don't like to say that. I'm old enough to say it because it's facts. It's it's on us to get them where they need to go. So we got to get from where we are to where we need to go. Uh, there are question marks. That's what coaches are for. We've got to teach them. We've got to be simple enough that we do things that better. We do things great that other people are doing good because you don't want to do so much. You're you're good at it. You need to be great at it. And and that's what we're working for. We brought in Gene Chizik and Charlton Warren, two guys who have been successful everywhere, but also here. Uh, they've given us a shot in the arm. It's an exciting time for them. We got to stop the run on defense. When you do that, you get second long, third and longs. You can affect quarterbacks and force turnovers. We haven't been able to do those things over the last three years consistently. And and to win, you've got to stop the run on the road, and you got to run the ball on the road and and win the kicking game and. And and that's what we're working toward. We are talking to Mac Brown. Mac, you mentioned Gene Chizik, and you talked about where you are in your life and the perspective you have right now. You and Gene are reunited once again. He had been away from the game now for a couple of years, being a dad. He said that getting to work with you again has been the perfect opportunity. What's it been like for you to work with him once again? Jim, I was talking to our athletics director, Bubba Cunningham, the other day, and he said I had so much energy after coming out of TV for five years, and Gene's the same. And you get a different perspective. You have a lot better perspective of the media and your job and that you're, you're not paranoid that every media guy is trying to get you fired. There's a job to do, and, and, and that takes a lot of pressure off coaches. And then you have a different perspective because you watch the way people did things. You get in your box as a coach, and you don't get out of your little box, and you keep doing the things that are successful, and then some people can go by you because they've got new ideas. So – when I sat out for five years and Gene sat out for five years, we looked at every uh, innovation that might help us when we got back into coaching, and it, it's really been healthy to, to do that. I, I would Coaches don't have a sabbatical, and you get tired. And if you stay 33 years, 30 years like I did, and now going on year 34, you need a break. And, and Gene got that break, I got that break, and it's really helped both of us uh, re-energize. It's one of my favorite answers ever, Mac. That makes so much sense to me, what you just said. I mean, everything about that answer makes so much sense to me. The part about how you get into a box and you get used to doing a certain thing a certain way, and then people can blow right by you when they get new ideas, and you never get a sabbatical, so you never get that perspective, and you never get to re-energize. I think it's such a fascinating response. Also, one of the topics, Mac, that always comes up with college coaches now, of course— is the transfer portal. You've brought in a few guys over the years, but you've also said that you're never going to be a big transfer place because it is tough to get guys into the program. Knowing that, how are you approaching the portal? Jim, roster management is tougher than ever before because some kids go to the NFL, some kids transfer, some kids flunk out, some kids get in trouble. So coaches across the country now are trying to figure out how many can I sign next year. What we, we have done is taken the approach like, like all of us do in our families. We're just being really honest with each other. So we sit every player down and say, okay, are, are you leaving if you get drafted? Uh, first three rounds, seventh round, what, are, are you just leaving if you're going to get drafted? 
uh, you're going to graduate. Are you going to transfer if you're not playing here? You're a second teamer. I don't see you starting. I see you getting more playing time, but are you going to leave? And and try to get a perspective now on who's going to be here at the end of the year. And and we, we talked yesterday. We've got to start. All of us have to start playing more players because if a guy's playing, he's going to stay. We're only going to lose guys that are second teamers that, that don't want to stay. But we're thin at linebacker because we had a linebacker last year that was starting he didn't get to play as much after another guy took his place. We should have played him more. We should have worked it out because when you lose your second teamer, then you're thin the next year. And and you can't catch up at a place like this as quickly with, with transfers. A lot of guys can't get in school. You have to transfer the hours into to each of the colleges. And I think you have to have 70 hours transfer so if you're in your junior senior year, that's not going to happen. It's hard to get in graduate school here. So it's hard to take graduate transfers. And I really feel like I would rather build our team off of guys that we recruited that chose to come here and that want to be a part of this. And if you're doing what you're supposed to do and they stay and grow and we play enough players, then you don't have to go um, – Fill a need. We we did get three graduate transfers this year. We'll have a starting center. Uh, we'll probably have a starting right tackle. The center was from Miami. Uh, the grad transfer from Harvard uh, is is at right tackle, and and the grad transfer from Virginia is at uh, the outside linebacker. I do have a little problem, Jim, with a guy from Harvard. Um, he was a he has a mechanical engineering degree with a minor in astrophysicist, and uh, I don't talk to him. He and I can't have conversations outside of football because he's way too smart for me. Because he's a rocket scientist, literally. <laughs> Mac Brown joining us. Mac, I want to ask you, I'm kind of curious. Like We talk perspective, and because I do a podcast on reinvention, I'm really curious about your process. Like For instance, when you're a two-time National Coach of the Year, when you're already in the Hall of Fame, when you've led two different programs to top five finishes, I understand that you still have work to do. I understand that you're still motivated. But here's my question. On the way up, you very clearly, I think like a lot of us on the way up, have a chip on our shoulder and this fire, this rocket fuel. Where you are in your life right now, do you try to go back and recapture that or do you rely on this newfound perspective or a perspective that's developed the last few years to kind of offset that? Like, what is your mindset right now in terms of competing and doing the work and the grind and the fire? Jim, I want to be the, the innovator. You, you have to navigate these new waters. we got NIL. We, we've got Transfer Portal. Uh, we've got uh, the, the possibility of, of realignment again. And I, I went through it at Texas, and now here we are all hearing it and looking at it uh, again, and you've got two perspectives. You can either gripe about it or you can navigate it and fix it. And it's just like COVID. The ones that handle COVID the best had the most success. And and instead of sitting around and saying how bad COVID is, because we can't help that, we can't fix it, we're not doctors, what we have to do is figure out for our program, for our team, for our staff, what is the best way to handle COVID moving forward. And we're approaching the same way with the transfer portal. We've told the guys it takes five minutes to get in the portal. I don't want you unhappy. So I'd like for you to stay and get a North Carolina degree. But if you want to leave, come to me. We'll get you in the portal in five minutes and help you go somewhere. Because we want you happy. It's your life. You only have one. Same thing with NIL. It's about your ball. It's not about your brand. 
you play good. There's some people that are probably wanting to go through the collective and have your name involved with their program. But you, get, I mean, with their business. But you got to stay out of trouble, and you got to play good, or these people aren't going to want you representing their companies. So we've just tried to be as honest as we can, but we also want to give a, a fresh, um, innovative perspective to our staff and our team and even our fans, so we can stay ahead of the game. The other thing, Jim, that that you You've been doing this so long, and it, it sounds corny again, but I want what's best for college football. I think the most important thing in college football are the players. The second most important thing are the fans, because we have no game unless the fans pay to come and see us play. So we can't lose our fans uh, if we just have two conferences, or we can't lose our fans if we just keep talking about NIL, because then you're uh, you're you're talking about being a professional team um, instead of amateurism that we've talked about for years. So we've got to really look at what's best for this game and therefore the kids and the fans. And, and we've, got to, we've got to have some hard conversations with smart people in a short period of time here to get back on track. Have to have the hard conversation always. Maxwell, one last thought and a quick follow. You mentioned realignment. You mentioned we can't really have just two conferences are you concerned about seeing two mega conferences and what that might mean for the future of the sport overall? Jim, I am, because then you go to 16-team playoff and you're the NFL. And again, that, that, and North Carolina will be fine. We're a national brand. We'll be taken care of. But when I was president of the AFCA, I always thought to the 17 board members, let's don't vote for what's best for our school. Let's vote for what's best for college football. And that's a hard perspective. To me, it, it's, it's not good for some of the great programs, whether it's the West Coast or the ACC. If a conference went away, some of the schools are going to drop down. They're not going to play at the same level. Their fan base won't be as exciting, uh, excited about watching them play. And then that's going to drop down to a group of five and to FCS and Division twos and threes. And I think we're really going to hurt football across the board if we just take care of 50 teams and drop everybody else. And, and I, I don't want to see that. I, I want to see football strong across the country, and I want to see the rivals between Washington and Washington State and, and, and Texas and OU. I, I don't want to see those things go away. And with realignment, before we lost some of those great games with Oklahoma and Nebraska and, and, and some of those type games, uh, I don't want to see that happen. We've all been raised on, on great competitive weekends with championships and rivals and homecoming and, and, and just coming back to your school and, and being involved with tailgating all day and, and the bands and the, the cheerleaders. And we lost some of that with COVID. We've gotten it back now. I don't want to lose it because we, we've got a, a USC playing in Indiana, and, and that's not the same as a USC playing a Stanford. I understand why it's happening, but to what you just said, Mac, it is pretty tough to get your head around a USC playing in Indiana. It still feels a little strange and a little weird. I know why it's happening, but it just does not feel right. You've got North Carolina opening up against Florida A&M. That's August 27th. As I mentioned, it's right around the corner. He is the head football coach at the University of North Carolina. I ran down the credentials and the resumes. I want to reiterate that he is a very good friend of this program. Mac, it is great to have you on. I always appreciate the insight and the conversation. I'm always better for it, and great to have you back, Mac. Thanks so much. 
Thank you, Jim. Anytime you want me on, you've got me, and, and let's uh, let's have a great football season. Oh, man, do I ever love this product. The Conair Turbo Extreme Steam Steam and Iron 2-in-1. So let me go ahead and tell you why I love it so much. Number one, it is the most powerful handheld steamer that I've ever seen. I'm talking fast and easy wrinkle removal, and I hate wrinkles. An extra large sole plate that can be used vertical or horizontal, and it also works without steam, is a dry iron. How is this possible? Because of advanced heat technology, which is ready almost instantly, and it obliterates wrinkles with turbocharged dry steam. Plus, four different settings for delicate to turbo is perfect for all fabrics. And it kills 99.9% of bacteria, it sanitizes around the house, and it refreshes clothing. Easy to use and great for at home or if you're on the go. To get yours today, go to Amazon, search Conair Turbo Extreme Steam, and look for the steam and iron two-in-one. Great, great product. Some more football for you. Starting hour number three, I want to talk about the Jets. J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. Chalk loves that. He may be living in Cali, living the life, but he's a J-E-T-S F-A-N at heart, heart, heart. What's up, Edward? Anyway, they they dodged a scud. Scud, scud, scud. S-C-U-D. Allegedly. Man, the start of their preseason and Zach Wilson, was that not the most Jets thing ever? You know, the way he starts off with a horrible pick, the way he then chases that by trying to plant and what looked like the worst thing ever. Like, their entire season went up in flames early on. For the sake of Jets fans, luckily that's not what happened, apparently. In case you missed it, and Jets Nation certainly did not because there was so much hype and so many expectations coming to this year. They were fired up. He gets up limping after scrambling in the first quarter of the team's first preseason game against Philly Friday night. And while I'm no doctor, I don't need to be one to know that that looked especially bad, particularly because there was no contact. And on first down, avoiding the rush. Wilson, wow. He could have elected for the sideline, but instead he dives ahead near midfield. Give him a gain of seven. Easy, John Elway. That was not the Super Bowl on the line. That was not the goal line that he was getting to try to get to a helicopter. I mean, I understand, my man, you want to make something happen. I understand you want to compete. But instead of getting down or getting out of bounds, he tried to cut and get upfield. Gets down, gets up limping, and that had the look of something really, really bad happening. You know, like the second overall pick in last year's draft, having a real shot at having his second year in the NFL being iced before it even started. Ibuprofen does not help that. But again, they may have dodged a scud because he is reportedly scheduled to have surgery tomorrow here in Los Angeles to repair meniscus and not his ACL. Reportedly expected to miss two to four weeks. Maybe six, but two to four weeks as originally reported, which, if true, is a hell of a lot better than missing the entire season, obviously. Given 
that GM Joe Douglas did everything he could to get Wilson the help that he needed. And from all reports, Wilson himself had a productive offseason. Expectations were actually pretty high for the Jets. But no matter how much help they get this guy, it still is going to come down to this guy. There's a reason why they took him second overall. He did not play like the second pick overall last season. So Jets Nation was anxious to get a look at the seemingly improved QB1. So him possibly shredding his knee while trying to make a play in a meaningless exhibition game instead of getting down or getting out of bounds looked like an absolute disaster. It literally looked like their season ended before it even started. And then on top of that, even before that play, even before that play, the much improved version of QB1 looked exactly the way he looked last season when he was playing like us. On second down, picked off. And down inside the 25-yard line, Kaiser White. How about that? Stepped right in front of the delivery from Zach Wilson, and the Eagles are going to have another opportunity just outside the red zone. We didn't have it right there, but there was a call of Ross Tucker on that play who laid it out perfectly. That that was a terrible play by Zach. Like, I'm watching that thinking to myself, damn, who let Sam Darnold back in? Oh, wait, that's not Sam Darnold. That's Zach last year. So that was his first drive of the year. Like I said, it's preseason. But that's not what you want to see if you're a Jets honk and you're hyped, especially when this dude was more off target on his throws than any other quarterback in the NFL a year ago, starting off off target again. Like you want to see something, something. So Wilson has a lot going for him this season. Like I said, Joe Douglas actually had a very good offseason. Despite losing Mekhi Becton, possibly for the year, the guy still brought linemen in to shore up their protection and add some more punch to the running game. He signed a couple of capable playmaking tight ends. He drafted Ohio State stud wide receiver Garrett Wilson in the first round. He got Iowa State's running back Brees Hall in the second round. Also, year number two in Mike LaFleur's system brother of Matt, disciple of Kyle Shanahan. So Wilson has all these things growing or working in his favor. And then the knee. So he's down for a couple of weeks. Maybe more than a couple of weeks. Could have been so much worse. So where does that leave us? Well, it brings the real possibility, Jets fan, that you might open up the season, might open up the season with Joe Flacco as your starting quarterback. Yeah, I know. Relax. I know what you're thinking. No, no, this is not happening. No. You might be thinking that. You probably should be thinking that. A 37-year-old Joe Flacco. But I'll tell you, one guy who's not, put aside his head coach, who says that Flacco's still an incredible player. Put that aside for a minute. I'll tell you the one guy who doesn't think that. One Joseph Vincent Flacco. Because old Joe is ready to roll. Because old Joe apparently has looked at the schedule. And what do you know? Looky here. Who is their week one opponent? That's right, his former team, the Baltimore Ravens. Hell yes. We might get the Super Bowl 47 champion going up against the team that he led to that Lombardi. And while I really want to see year two Zach Wilson... 
What I want to see even more is year 15 Joe Flacco versus Baltimore week one. Actually, I don't want to see this. I need to see this. And evidently, so does Joe. Am I right, Joseph? I've probably thought about it a tiny bit. It's so far away, and who knows what's going to happen at this point. But I've definitely thought about that in a little bit. Like, oh, yeah, it's not going to be a big deal. And I'm, I'm going to know deep down, like, okay, it's, you know, I'm going to try to make sure it's not the biggest deal in the world. But at the same time, I've been through it enough. I've seen guys go through it. It's a different thing. Yeah, it's the biggest deal in the world, actually, Joe. That probably would mean more to you. Beating them would probably mean more to you than winning a Super Bowl for them. I mean, come on, Joe. Don't be afri- afraid to tell the world that you circled that game because you know you did. Because if you were starting, I certainly circled that game. That would be must-see stuff right there. Joe the L. Jack and his former Ravens. Who you got? Because you know Joseph is going to pull out every one of the tricks. He is going to throw the kitchen sink at them, and he is willing to do anything and everything to get his former team. You know that. If he starts to break it, go tackle him. Really? I don't know. I mean, what else? What can they? I don't know. I mean, they might be able to give him a touchdown on that, but I don't know. Hey, if he breaks it, if he busts this for some reason, tackle him. Go tackle him. I don't know what the rule is on that, but. I will. I'm going to. Hey, hey, if he breaks it, go tackle him. Hey. Dude's like, really? Yes. I will if you don't. I'm telling you, you know damn well. You know damn well if that does go down. If Wilson's not ready and they don't bring in Jimmy G and they go with Flacco because, after all, Flacco is, quote, an incredible player even at 37. If that does go down. You know damn well, quote, Debbie and their kids, Joe Jr. and Joe the Third, are going to be right there to support their old man. Good to have you on the show, Joe. What's up? Hey, Jim. How you doing today? Good, good. How about you? Yeah, this is Joe Flacco. I heard Martellus canceled, so I thought I'd give you a call. That's absolutely incredible. Joe Flacco. You know, not to be insulting, what jersey number do you wear? Joe Flacco, number five. Okay. What college did you go to? Delaware, Blue Hens. Okay, what is your wife's name? Deborah. Deborah? Well, I call her Debbie, but... Okay, well, really, because the rest of us call her Dana, but whatever. She is your wife. How many sons do you have? I've got two boys. What are their names? Joe Jr. and Joe the Third. <laughs> ah! Hey! Hey, Joe! Hey! It's been a minute since you lobbed me a telephone call. Man, come in, grab a vine. I would love to hear your biggest concerns in playing that Baltimore defense. The one you know damn well. Let's just hope, my guy, let's just hope, for your sake, they do not add that Sue guy that you were so worried about the last time you called in. You know he's still a free agent, right? You guys have a huge game on Monday night. I'm not looking to do a whole interview here, but what is your biggest concern about matching up with Detroit on Monday night? Because obviously that's a game that both of you have to have, the Ravens and the Lions. Well, it's probably that Sue guy, number 90, I think. If he steps on my head or tries to take my knee out, I mean, that won't be good. My biggest concern is that Sue guy. Because if he steps on my head or tries to take my knee out, that won't be good. You know, a couple of things that 
have been alleged about that, quote, Sue guy. Anyway, what do you like best about that phone call? The fact that somebody called pretending to be Joe Flacco, thought that I might believe that he was Joe Flacco, or just his voice. Anyway, as I mentioned, I really am eager to see the year two Zach Wilson, but not nearly as eager as I am to see the year 15 Joe Flacco against his former team. Christopher in Appleton. Christopher, what's going on? How are you? Hey, Jim. I'm doing great. Thanks for taking my call. So I've been uh, dying to know, and I wanted to give you a little bit of time to acclimate yourself to uh, full-time culture, full-time part-time culture here. And uh, my question is, when you go to the supper club uh, on Friday, for your obviously for your Friday fish fry, what's your fish order? You do perch, haddock, fried, beer-battered, pan-fried? And then your old-fashioned, how do you get that? You do whiskey sour, brandy sweet, what do you go for? And what do you think about having to take your order at the bar and then they take you to a table and deliver your food? My man, rack him. He's right about all that. That's how that goes. Cameron Jordan is my guest. Cam, it's great to have you back. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. That that two-time uh, nomination of the Walter Payton Man of the Year, is that, a, is that like a real stat? Like, do, do we keep track of that? I do. I do, dude. You should. I do. I would. If I were nominated for that award twice, I would definitely lead with that. And if not lead with that, I would make sure that was in my bio. So, totally up to you, but I do. No doubt. I, I just go by the Ricky Bobby saying, if you're not first, you're last. There you go. Exactly. And, I, and I'm a no-time Walter Payton Man of the Year nominee. In fact, I'm a, I'm a no-time nominee for anything. Anyway, so you and I got caught up on Radio Row. From where I'm sitting right now, I'm checking you out, and you've got a great, great look, a strong look. The fro, the, fro, the Fu Manchu. I've got to think life is pretty good. How did that look come to be, and how much power are you feeling from the look itself right now? I would say there's a lot of soul power in this afro. I mean, you, you talk about the Fu Manchu, self-proclaimed Fu Manchu Lorian. Uh, match it up with the afro. I was sitting at the house and I was just like, you know what? I haven't seen my chin in a while. I've been I've been hiding this, you know, behind a beard or a mustache or a goatee for a number of years, and I just need to see the chin. So I gave the chin a little air and was like, you know what? The fro needs to match. And so now I'm just growing the fro out. It's just you know, I'm feeling I'm feeling very. Uh, 80s strong. Like, there's a lot of neo-soul power coming through these these veins right now. My man, you look great. You sound great. I totally appreciate that. Cameron Jordan is joining us. You know, I'm watching some of these mic'd up segments, too, and there's a lot of things, and when I see you mic'd up, that jump out at me, but part of that is you teaching your teammates, like, the tiny little details in the game, like hand placement on a rush, when and how to fire your legs when you hit the sled. Like, how big of a role does perfect technique play in your success? Who did you learn that from when you were coming up? Oh, man. I mean, technique is, is what, what we practice every, each and every day. Um, and, you know, I don't know who you learn it from. It's probably going to be, the, you know, from, from Steve Jordan himself. I mean, if you're going to do something, you, you do it to the best of your ability. So when we talk about just trying to perfect the technique, it's a job that you can never be finished, right? I mean, we all want to be perfect, but nobody is. So we're always striving for perfection. And those nuances to, you know, whether you're straining against the offensive lineman or you're, you're shedding or you're trying to be in the backfield making these tackles, it all starts with technique. Because at the end of the day, you know, you, you are given a set amount of talent by God, but you can always perfect your technique. You can always get better in some areas. And getting, those, getting better and getting my teammates better is only going to make our defense better. 
So if, if I'm trying to get myself better, I, I expect that my teammates are trying to correct me like I'm trying to correct them. And it goes hand in hand. Like if I'm not making Marcus Davenport better or, you know, the young buck Jordan Jackson better, what am I doing? If they're not, if not watching my technique and if I'm failing somewhere, they're not trying to get me better, then we're really just not becoming a better D-line. I love that. Cameron Jordan joining us. So I wonder then, I, you bring that to it, it affects the locker room, it affects the culture, and then when you have other guys come in that have had success in other places that are quality guys, culture guys, guys like Jarvis Landry and Tyron Matthew, what's it like when you bring those two guys in the locker room, and then how does that impact the culture? Man, I mean, it's easily accepted. They, we, we, we know everything about their background. You know, we know, of course, they're from Louisiana, which is already a great thing. But we, we know the work ethic that Jarvis brings to the game. And, I mean, you see him working those, those you know, caveats to his routes uh, with the younger guys, too. I mean, he spreads knowledge. The greatest thing about our locker room is, you know, we're an open book. I can, I can go talk to, you know, Tonsi Gardner-Johnson as well as I can go walk down and talk to Marshawn Lattimore if I have to. So when you have that open of a locker room, I'm able to, you know, go go see what Demari Davis sees before I go, you know, if I see a run gap fit differently than he does. We're on the same page by the time a game can happen because we have that open open door policy. And, I mean, it, it, so when you bring in guys like Tyron Matthew, who is just like that, like this is what I see when I'm playing safety or this is what I see when I'm, I'm here, I'm here, it, it allows your defense to react that much faster. When you have a guy like, you know, Jarvis hit the locker room, not only is he a great locker room guy, he's a great – uh, cultivator of minds when you talk about just his wide receiver knowledge and what he's done with offenses through different teams. Um, you come here and, you know, we have a young guy in Chris Olave and he's getting the best of both worlds. He's getting information from Mike Thomas, who's, you know, arguably, uh, when healthy, one of the best receivers in the game. And then, of course, Jarvis, how savvy he is, what he brings to the game himself. He's catching both of that. I mean, that's a phenomenal tutelage in my mind. Cameron Jordan joining us. Cam, your energy is just off the charts, and it always is, but I can tell how excited you are. You mentioned Mike Thomas, so Michael Thomas is working his way back as well. How excited are you to have him back, and then how much better will he make Jameis Winston if he is healthy, as you point out? Man, I mean, you know, what Jameis was working with last year, you know, not to take anything, but our, our leading receiver was Deontay Hardy, who was a, you know, was a punt returner, special teams guy, um, and, you know, Marquez Callaway. Uh, who who was an undrafted guy. And then, you know, this year, now you look at if everybody's healthy, you have a healthy Mike Thomas. You have uh, a strong Jarvis Landry. You have Chris Olave. I mean, and then you have the guys that have been learning. You know, you've got Trey Quan Smith. You've got, again, Deontay Hardy, uh, Marquez Callaway, who can come in and produce these bigger numbers. So now it's not like who's going to be our number one. It's like now you're asking who's going to be our number one. <laughs> you go from uh, do we have a number one to how many number ones do we have? Cameron Jordan joining us. It's a really fair point. You know, you were also at the Pass Rush Summit earlier this offseason. So I was asking you, like, how important is it for you to help teach these younger guys? I mean, you're still learning. Like, you're still doing this sort of thing. I'm curious, what was that experience like, and what did you take away from it? Now, I think Von Miller has done a phenomenal job of even creating something like a Pass Rush Summit. I think the spinoff was the tight end summit or something like that, right? The tight end university uh, from George Kittle. And, of course, because of that, it was probably reactionary that offensive linemen have something. Now, I'm not sure what offensive linemen do if they gather around other than eat food and talk about, you know, getting, getting punched in the chest and the face by a defensive end. But uh, that's just what I think that happens at an offensive line camp. Um, being, being at a pass rush summit, um, you're literally just thinking about, you know, bet, the best ways to go about it. So I'm over here, you know, talking to Vaughn about, you know, his first three steps and his get off or Chandler and how he offsets some of his stances and just the idea that, 
there's timing that can go in with a lot of different pass rushes instead of just working just, you know, the moves that I'm good at. I'm, I'm really there to steal. I'm stealing moves from everybody. <laughs> it's funny, Cam. Like, I would think that I understand that you guys have a lot to share, but I also understand that guys might not want to share. So if you're there to steal, are you a fully open book with guys when they want to chat with you? Or are there some secrets that you're not willing to give up? I'm, I mean, come, come get it all. You know, if, if anything, it's a lot like um, I'm not saying, you know, the you know, greatest of all times. You know, you think about what, what Kobe was able to do, mimic his game off Jordan, what LeBron was able to do, mimic his game off Jordan, Kobe, and Magic. I mean, you, it, it's just that next gen. You have to be an open book. Because, I mean, I'm trying to take as many moves as I can. I'm trying to take, you know, Chandler's long arm. I'm trying to take Vaughn's ghost. I'm trying to, you know, take Calais Campbell's, you know, outside swipe. I'm trying to take Yannick's cross chop. I mean, if I can't create a bag and, and incorporate them to my own moves, then I'm just sticking to the same. And, I mean, if you stay in the same place, you're getting stagnant. If you're getting stagnant, somebody's going to leave you behind. And that's always been the name of the game. So if somebody comes to me, I'm like, yo, I, have, I think I've got a great, you know, stab club, which has, you know, been pretty, pretty good for me. I've got a great arm over. Now, this is what I do when I'm setting up. I'm, I'm going to give you the real deal because I want to see if you can do it. And if you can do it and even make it better, then great. I'm going to go ahead and steal it back. At the end of the day, it's all about, it's all about, you know, the moves that we're trying to do to beat off the linemen. Because I think every one of our pass rushers, you think about Max Crosby to, you know, uh, little young, young bucks you got over at Jacksonville now, they've, they've got potential to be great. You think about if they can come over and grab a mentality, grab a mindset from any of the words that you're spitting out or the, you, you're seeing it, their mindset and what they're thinking about when they're setting up a pass rush, that can only benefit the pass rushing game. And, I mean, I love – watching pass rushers. I, I love that you mentioned mindset. What's more important, really, really good technique, or does it all start with a mindset, the proper mindset? Oh, you can win off a mindset. <laughs> if I, if I, if sometimes you may not have the best technique, but your mindset says I'm unblockable. You can win off mindset. You're talking about big Jeffrey Simmons over at, down at Tennessee. I mean, you, you can see the way that he uses his power. Some of that is just one-two. I want, to, I want to move this man four yards to the back, sit him in the quarterback's lap, and he does just that. And then you see the technique that goes into it. But it starts off with mindset. You can have, you, can have, you know, the greatest moves in the world, but if you don't have the mindset to attack, then this is something that's holding you back, setting you down. You could, you're taking away from yourself. Talking to Cameron Jordan for another moment. Listen, back when you and I spoke on Radio Row, we talked about the transition from Sean Payton to Dennis Allen. Obviously, you know Allen really well from his time as D coordinator. What was the first camp with him as head coach? What's that been like? Man, um, I mean, we're in the light and no tunnel. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you think about what we're, what we're trying to accomplish, um, even with our first preseason game. I mean, we've got, we've, we've got a lot of good stuff on tape, and we've got some things that we need to correct. Um, but being in a training camp with him, I mean, it's it's different because I've never had a defensive-minded coach my entire life be a head coach. You know, normally the buck stops at my D.C., and I don't really have to worry about a, a head coach unless defense is messing up terribly. Now, it's you know, the D.C. The DC is the head coach, so he's, he's making sure that, you know, our defense has to be on point. Our defense is, is sort of like the example first instead of it always just relying on if the offense has a good two-minute drive, if the offense has a good four-minute, you know, it's sort of inverted. And at the same time, I think it challenges our offense to be better because we're so defensive forward. That's like they say, Cam, look good, feel good, feel good, get played good or get paid good. Dude, you look great. You sound amazing. And that's how you close the show. That music means I'm done. Cam, great to have you back on. Really appreciate you and the relationship, man. Thanks so much. No doubt. Appreciate you for having me on as always. You're I'll the see, best. I'll see you I'll one time, you know, I got a new timepiece to show off anyway. Good night now!